Good morning. It is just a delight to be with the Grand Rapids First family on the day after Christmas. Everybody carved up and sugared up and crashed out from all that they have done to their bodies over the last few days. Everybody doing all right? And to you online, it's good to be with you this morning and uh, just hope you've had a wonderful, wonderful Christmas, that it's been a good season for you. And I hope everybody is having, if I can use this word, a meaningful Christmas season and holiday season. And uh, I choose that word on purpose because meaningful is something that we all can do. One thing that I love about the Christmas story, if you go back and you read the gospel accounts, is that they invite us to ask and challenge the child Jesus to come into the very darkest parts of life. If you go back and you read the stories, um, it's interesting that words pop up that maybe are familiar to your and my story. We read about Zechariah in the temple who is struck dumb, cannot speak, and uh, some scholars believe that he also was deaf. And uh, we know from Second Temple Judaism that the, if they followed policy, he should have lost his job. He was not able to serve in the temple. So whether he lost his job or he didn't lose his job, unemployment is one of those words that comes into their story. We know that uh, Mary and Joseph, I don't know, you ever read the story of Mary and Joseph? We think she's 14, 15 years old, something like that. They're going through all of this crisis and you think, where are these people's parents? Like, what is going on in this story? They're going through all this trauma and difficulty, all of these accusations, and they're like, we can't go to our parents' house. I guess we'll just go to Egypt. I don't know. Something is going on in the family. And there's sort of family drama going on. We see words like racism. We know that there is a genocide that is happening specifically because one group of people are of a different ethnicity than another. We have financial difficulty, Mary and Joseph take off jobless and migrate and go into an inflationary housing market. How many feel that? Inflationary housing market, got your number right now. All of those words, financial difficulty, family drama, racism, all of that, and Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm gonna come right into the middle of all the darkness and I'm just gonna challenge that my life, my death, and my resurrection is up to the task of interacting with real life. And so when I say have a meaningful holiday, sometimes I just think happy and merry are tough to pull off when you're in the middle of it. You know, when someone looks at you and you're in the middle of one of those situations and they say Merry Christmas, you're just sort of like, I'm not sure I can pull off Merry today. I'm not sure I can do, if you're British, Happy Christmas. I'm not sure I can do Happy Christmas right now. But we can always pull off meaningful. We can always lean into the presence of Jesus and find something that's meaningful about the season. Or maybe if we're having a great Christmas, maybe you're one of those people, you got everything you wanted. You had the entire experience, the package. You had the, the photograph for Facebook that was perfect and pristine. We never take those. We can't pull those off because none of us comb our hair on Christmas. All you people look so good on Christmas. We're like, we don't comb our hair. We're lucky every, our family has pants on. That's we're lucky on Christmas. So you guys are amazing. Maybe you have the picture-perfect Christmas, and that word meaningful just invites us in to say, hey, even in the midst of getting everything that we want, let's make sure that we lean in and we really take stock of the deeper things, the more meaningful things about this season. And we are in the middle of it, aren't we? We're day after Christmas, and we're headed into uh, New Year, and you know what that means. It's going to be time to evaluate. 
How many of you are like, I'm just gonna skip right over that part. I don't wanna look back at this past year. I don't wanna do it. But there, it's going to happen, and if you're on social media, you're gonna see people do it, right? And we want you to do it. We, how many of you wanna celebrate with people who got some awesome stuff this year? Like, there are people this year, they, got, they, they found the love of their life and they are getting married. We are delighted for you. We want to see you celebrate that on New Year's Eve. Maybe some of us, we got the house of our dreams. We want to celebrate that with you. Maybe some of us ran a marathon. We wanna celebrate that with you. We also wanna know what you're running from. Fun fact, you ever see me running that long? You better start running too, because something is chasing me. <laughs> I don't know what that is about, but we want to celebrate that with you. And then after the celebration will come the evaluation, right? And, and people will make goals, and they'll make projections. And you know how it is if you're one of those people, you're like, I'm going to learn two languages this year. I'm going to pray seven hours a day. I'm going to read 300 books, and I'm going to scale Mount Everest. Do we have any of those people in this room? You're like, I'm going to do all of that this year, even though I did none of that the previous year. I'm going to do all of that this year. This year, I have a simple goal. I, and for 47 years of my life, that's my entire life, I have not known whether this is true or not. I'm going to try to discover whether I actually do, in fact, possess abs. That's my goal for 2022. So you can join me with that if you, if you want to. And all of that is great, uh, and we will evaluate substantive things like our pace of life. We'll evaluate things like careers and relationships and our spiritual life and our emotional life and our finances. There's something about being in a new year that's important to us. We recognize that it is an opportunity to try to do something fresh or new. But the problem with being in a new year is that when you enter into that new year, you are still in a year that is here. You are still in this life. You are still in the environment you are in. In fact, for most of us, we have relationships, we have family history, we have environments, we have workplaces, we have financial realities, we may even have health prognoses that when we hit January 1st, 2022, they will be no different than they were on December 31st of 2021. It will be exactly the same. And I don't know if you figured this out about yourself, but your environment and my environment, they impact us. And it has impacted us. So I wonder what will make the difference. If nothing around us changes, how do we change? That's a great question. And I think one that Paul is very interested in when he's writing the letter to the Ephesians. Over 45 times in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he uses a little Greek preposition. In English, it looks like en. It just means in, inside of. If I have a box, I put it en. N inside that box. Over 45 times, he uses this equivalent of the word, and Paul is writing to a church at Ephesus, and it's a busy, hustling, bustling, cosmopolitan city, and he is deeply aware that how what they are in, the city they are in, is shaping them, it's impacting them. You know, the place where you live, where you do your life, it impacts you. It shapes what you think success is. It shapes how you think about yourself, how you think about God, how you think about family, how you think about money, power, sex. All of that is shaped by what we are in. Yes? And he's writing to the Ephesians, and Paul is interested in this question that we're interested in as we start the new year. He's interested in this dilemma. If what we are in impacts who we are, how do we change who we are when we have no power to change what we're in? 
In other words, if I am existing in this dynamic where the world around me, my environment, my situation, my finances, my health, my relationships, they are impacting me and causing me to become a certain kind of person, if I can't change those things, is there any hope that I actually become a different person? Is that possible? If you'd like a title for this morning's time together, you can just jot this down. What we are in. And after we pray, we're going to look at a series of four connected passages in Ephesians that deal with this dynamic of being in something. Is it okay if I do a little bit of like more teaching this morning? Is that okay? So if I can, I wanna get us to the place where we can take a very practical action step that will help us by the end of 2022 maybe have some significant growth in areas that we really are interested in. How many have a thing that has been on your resolution list for a few years? You're like, it just keeps showing up. It's on the to-do list. Maybe I'll figure it out at some point. And maybe it's an interior thing. Maybe it's a behavior. Maybe it's an anxiety. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it is an addiction or a compulsion. Whatever it is, every year is gonna be the year. And I'd just love for us to walk out of this morning with something real and tangible that we can actually do that might help that look different for us. One thing we can scratch off the list during 2022. So why don't we pray together? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for Pastor Sam and Pastor Brenda and their family. We ask you that you would just be with them. There are wonderful things happening in this beautiful season. There are challenging things happening. And I just pray they would feel your love and they'd feel the love of this community today. That it would just, there would be no doubt in their mind that they are loved, celebrated, honored, valued by you and by your people. And Father, we gather together today and we just ask you this simple thing, that would you help us become more like you? When we're more like you, we experience more hope, more joy, more love, more peace, more patience. We experience more kindness, both inside of ourselves and toward other people. Would you help us to become more like you in 2022? Would you help us with that, Lord? In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. If you haven't already, you can grab and flip open your Bibles or if your phone or whatever it is to Ephesians chapter one. And also, I'd like you to do one little thing. I'd like you to grab either a small piece of paper or if you've got a notes app on your phone, and I just want you to put that to the side. You're gonna need that in just a few moments. I'm gonna ask you to jot a couple of things down for yourself. So set that aside for yourself. Ephesians chapter one. And in Ephesians chapter one, the first passage I'd like us to look at, Paul is just kind of, kind of introducing his letter to the Ephesians, and Paul opens up with a greeting to the people at Ephesus. And he's also doing something kind of sneaky. He's subtly introducing his theme that he's going to talk about for the rest of the letter. Let's see if we can go ahead and read that together, just verses one and two of Ephesians chapter one. Reading from the English Standard Version, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you probably picked up the pairing of the words when we read it. It probably helped that we underline them on the screen there for you. That we have a dynamic where Paul is wanting to introduce the idea that we as followers of Christ live a dual citizenship life that we have an existence in Ephesus, in our world that we live in, and we also have an existence that is in Christ, yeah? That we have both of those things. And both of those things are shaping us and they are 
critical to us. They battle for our attention. And our challenge this morning is to ask ourselves if we do live in Ephesus or in Grand Rapids and we also live in Christ, how do I make the shift where living in Christ becomes the dominant formative environment in my life and not Ephesus? I do live in both of them. How do I make that switch? So that's what we'll be kind of headed over the next little bit. So we're going to tease out three ideas if we can. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on number one because it is foundational to Paul's whole line of argumentation. So idea number one, what we are in makes us who we are. What we are in makes us who we are. As we read in Paul's introductory verses, Paul intentionally places those two Christian identities right next to each other. We're in Ephesus, we're in Christ Jesus, and Paul just grants that. If you are a Christ follower here today, you do not get to avoid your real life because you are a follower of Christ. You live in a real world. How many know you live in a real world? Some of us experienced some real world this week. But you also live in a real Christ. You have two formative environments that are at work in you and trying and vying for attention. We're living in Ephesus, we eat there, we drink there, we live there, we work there, we're loved there and hated there, celebrated there, rejected there, we experience pain there, we experience pleasure there, and we experience important ideas about what it means to be a mom and what it means to be a dad and what it means to be successful. Some of us even this week looked at Facebook and Facebook told you what it was like to have a successful Christmas. And you felt like you didn't. Your culture is impacting you. Your Ephesus impacts you. But we also are in Christ, and we have authentic experiences there that are also just as real as the ones that we have in these bodies that we live in. And there is a conversation and a dialogue going on between those two environments. And in the introduction, Paul does something where he's trying to just kind of wedge us into this conversation where he says, okay, you are in Ephesus and you are also in Christ, but I'm gonna insert one little word there that's very important. You are faithful in Christ Jesus. You have two environments that are at work at you, but one of them will be vying for your primary attention. It will become the dominant shaping force of your life. And this is important because what we are in, where our primary experiences are, those will play a dominant role in shaping us and making us who we are. Now this is baseline for Paul's way of thinking and I think if Paul were alive today, he would nod his head and he would affirm what now is being observed by psychologists and, soci and the sociological community who have helped us understand and articulate what Paul is already asserting here, that what we are in makes us who we are. The environment that we're raised in, the little uh, nexus of relationships and material experiences we have, they play a huge role in forming us as people. Maybe I can give you a couple of examples. Maybe some of us are familiar with something called an ACE assessment. An ACE assessment is a series of 10 questions that just asks whether you have had any of these 10 adverse childhood experiences. It asks you 10 questions. We use it for children who are brought into foster care system. We use them as sociologists. We use them as psychologists. And if we just ask these 10 simple questions, they're simple questions like, did you experience food scarcity when you were a child? Were you physically abused as a child? Were you emotionally abused as a child? Did you suffer the death of one or both parents as a child? Were one of your parents in Incarcerated. A person who answers four or more, and for some reason, four seems to be a magic number, answers four or more yes 
to those 10 questions are twice as likely to be smokers, seven times more likely to be an alcoholic or exhibit other addictive behaviors like workaholism, drug addiction, codependency, or sex addiction. They're more likely to be violent verbally or physically, to have more marriages, more drug prescriptions, more anxiety, more depression, higher job turnover, and higher autoimmune disease. They are 12 times more likely to have attempted suicide. If we bump up that number to six, the average person with six positives on an ACE assessment experiences on average a 20-year decrease in life expectancy. Why? Because what we are in impacts us. It shapes us. Maybe I can give you a silly example. Can you pull up that picture for me? <sighs> the left is my dog. That is Herbert. He's a 90-pound sheepadoodle. His IQ is three. <laughs> my 90-pound dog, do you know why he lets me do that to him? This 90-pound dog will crawl up in my lap, lay on his back, and let me hold him like a baby. I can tell you, if you break into my house, the chances of my dog protecting me from you are zero. But there's a reason for that. He has been in an environment. That dog does not perceive you as a threat because he has never experienced one. He has been trained his entire life to believe that people exist to pat his head, feed his, feed his mouth, and clean up his backside. That is why humans exist. The dog on the right is a Tibetan Mastiff. It lives in one of the harshest environments in the world where a single failed hunt for prey could cause the starvation of that dog, its spouse, and all of its pups. Why is it that way? Because of the environment it has been raised in. What you are in makes you what you are. I'll give you one more example. A fascinating study found that the grandchildren of people who were held in either Dachau or Auschwitz during the Second World War, the grandchildren, so they've never been in Auschwitz, they've never been in Dachau, many of them have never seen the concentration camps. They weren't in the Second World War, they haven't been imprisoned, they haven't been beaten, they just are the grandchildren of people who have been are three times more likely to be diagnosed with a significant psychiatric disorder before they're 18 years old. Why is that? Well, because traumatized people engage in traumatized behavior who then raise people who are traumatized by that behavior, who become traumatized people, who raise people who are traumatized by that traumatized behavior. What we are in impacts who we are. And we cannot escape this dynamic. It is a part of our lives. And you say, well, JP, that's maybe just sort of pop psychology. It doesn't impact us. We're new creations in Christ. That is true. You are a new creation. You are a new plant. And as the parent of many, many dead plants, <laughs> let me assure you that environment still matters. It still makes a difference for us. It's just that we now have access to another environment. And we find this same idea teased out in Scripture as well. The power of environments is part of the created order of God. He's the one who made it that way. 
Part of the reason that you and I are called to have healthy marriages, we're called to be healthy parents, good neighbors, good coworkers, good community members, and to care for others, is that when people are damaged or hurt or wounded, they act like people who've been damaged or hurt or wounded. They are desperate and they're looking to be made well and they become self-protective and defensive and aggressive. And do you know what those people do? They damage more people. And those people damage more people. The power of relationships and their environment to have an impact us is baked right into the cake. You are made as image of God, as a person. And what that means is that you have not only the call and the commission, but you have been called, you have been given the ability. And ability is just another word for power. You have been given the power to image Christ to someone else and to impact the way they feel about themselves, about God, and about the world around them. Martin Luther said that we have a call to be little Christs, to walk in God's image, and because of that imageness, people's lives are impacted, and that power is not moral. It, it belongs to us as the image of God, and we either participate with Christ, and that power becomes constructive, or we do not participate with Christ, and that power becomes destructive. But we do impact one another. We are part of each other's environment. And we have seen it and experienced it. If we were to go around the room today, we could probably tell stories, maybe in our family, maybe in a family close to us, about cycles of generational poverty, cycles of generational addiction, cycles of generational anger and selfishness and brokenness. Hurting people, hurting people, who hurt people, who hurt people, who hurt people. This is actually probably what the Old Testament has in mind when it talks about the idea of the sins of the fathers being visited on the children. It isn't God looked down and said, oh, you've done a bad thing, I'm gonna sprinkle bad dust on your children. It is a commentary on the power of environment. That if I am a sinful person, there are consequences for that. I've created an environment that is damaging to people and makes it more difficult for them to experience the wholeness of God. I failed in being Martin Luther's little Christ. In fact, we think of people as exceptional when they act contradictory to their environment, don't we? Maybe you might know the name of Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley was brought from Africa as a slave in the 18th century when she was seven or eight years old. She was transported on a ship called the Phyllis. She was sold to the Wheatley family in Boston, and so her name was a combination of the ship that took her from her land and the people who ensured she could never return to her land. That was her birthright. During the 18th century, she became something that nobody expected. She became the most famous female poet in America. And during the 19th century, that made her, 18th century, that made her two extraordinary things. There were very few female poets of prominence, and there was not a single black American of prominence in the country. And everybody was blown away. She wrote an elegy on the death of George Washington, an elegy on the death of George Whitfield that were published in all the newspapers. She was finally taken to England to present her poetry before the King of England. And can I tell you, the miracle isn't that a woman wrote great poetry. Women have been writing great poetry for a long time. The miracle was not that a black woman wrote great poetry. Maya Angelou, anybody? The miracle was that somebody who had everything taken from them, who had been victimized and marginalized and hurt and wounded, found it within themselves to develop their ability to communicate words of hope and words of affirmation and words of possibility to a generation. She was not consistent with her environment. 
And that's what made her exceptional. We think about the child who comes from the wrong side of the tracks that makes good. We notice them because they are not behaving in a way that is consistent with their environment. In fact, it works the opposite way too. The reason Judas is so shocking is because we know his environment. He spent three years with Jesus. The reason he stands out is that plenty of other people betrayed Jesus, but they didn't spend three years with him. So what we're admitting by that is that we all intuitively know, we know it intuitively, that our environment shapes who we are. Our very celebration of the exceptions demonstrates that. What we are in makes us who we are. I suspect even if we went to those exceptions, we'd find that there's somebody who got in there and figured out that there was a different way to do this and help them see something different. Now, does that make sense? We're doing it because that's groundwork. Doing okay? Good. For some of us, we're like, well, that explains a lot. But it also leaves me feeling a little bit hopeless. Like, so I'm just, I'm just drowning in this past and experience and, and world that I have. Just stick with me, because that's just groundwork. But we need to start where we're really at. We have to be honest with ourselves. That leads us to idea number two. What we choose to be in will determine what we become. Remember in verse one, Paul sets the Ephesian Christians in two competing environments, and we do actually have a choice. We don't have a choice about whether they exist. We don't have a choice about whether they impact us, but we do have a choice about which one plays the dominant role in our formation. We will be faithful to one, and we will be unfaithful to the other. One will dominate. So then Paul does something really interesting. If you look at the rest of chapter one and then into chapter two, it's divided into three sections. Chapter one is verse, or section one is verses uh, three through 14, and then with section three, which we'll look at in a moment, starts in chapter two and covers just the first three verses. And here's what Paul does. He says, you are in Ephesus and you are in Christ, and what I wanna do is I wanna talk for a moment in chapter two about what it means to live in Ephesus, how that is impacting you. And then I wanna talk in chapter one from verses uh, three to 14 about what it means to live in Christ and how that's impacting you. And tucked between those two sections is Paul's prayer. And his prayer gives us the key to actually living in Christ versus being impacted by Ephesus. That's the structure of the first couple of chapters. So let's start with what it looks like to live in Ephesus. And I want you to do me a favor and pay attention to the words of atmosphere, the in words that we look at in this particular passage. Chapter two, verses one through three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Can you do me a favor and leave that passage right up on the screen? Um, in fact, if you can flip back to the first part of it, that would be great. Did you pick up all those environment words? Already we have four uses of our little inward. But even more importantly than that, we have all of these atmospheric words. When we are in Ephesus, we are in an environment of habit. It says that we are in the sins in which we once walked. Do you know that your own history is a part of your environment? It is a part of what shapes you. Your story is a part of what makes you who you are. 
We get wired for a behavior. We develop a habit of behavior. Our past and our present become a part of our environment. Then he says we have an environment of culture. We are in the course of this world. In the Greek, the idea is a course of a river. Like you're in a big river and you're just floating down it and there's no way to escape from it. It's just carrying you downstream. The idea is, is that culture is just reinforcing our brokenness, reinforcing our difficulty, reinforcing our, our propensity to do what is not leading to life or for us or for others. He then says we have an environment of genetics. We live among the sons of disobedience. We have people who have acted as our parents, they may have even been our parents, who have taught us the art of brokenness. Their sin, their brokenness and dysfunction has given rise to ours, and if we do not intervene with a new environment, we'll give rise to the next generations. If you can think of it this way, we've been mentored and parented by a culture of anger and lust and pride and unforgiveness. We have an environment of relationships. It says, among, once, who, among whom you once all lived. We were in a community of people who were all participating in things that are damaging and destructive, that damaged us, and when we are not whole, when we are damaged, we are least likely to be holy. And we have an environment of internal desires. It says we have desires of the body and the mind. And if we don't understand the proper context for those, they make us by nature, because they're a part of us, those desires, children of wrath, or people who don't participate in God's goodness. It's no wonder we feel like we can't escape. All of that is working against us, and, and some of us here probably feel that deeply, even this morning. We feel like the anger that we experience, or the pornography addiction, or the jealousy, or loneliness, or negativity, or the greed, or emotionlessness, or addiction, whatever it is, we feel like, man, it is in my past, and it is with me. It is in my family, and it is around me. It is in my culture, and it is speaking to me, and I am stuck in this river, and nobody can get me out. You might even be a Christ follower, but you just think to yourself, I cannot stop losing my temper. I cannot stop getting into this funk emotionally. I, can, I cannot stop any of this. It just seems like I'm powerless against it. And when you look back at it, it's the whole history, it's the family, it's the whole package is surrounding you and it feels overwhelming. Here's what I want you to do. I asked you to grab a piece of paper or your note, little note in your uh, phone. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to jot down the three negative environmental issues that you feel like make it most difficult for you to have the life and be the person that Jesus wants you to be. What is it about your past, whether your family? What is it about your present? Maybe it's your workplace, your financial insecurity, anxiety, maybe it's a fear, maybe it's a, a health prognosis. What is it about your past behavior that you feel like is leading you to continue to have specific thoughts? What is it that is keeping you from being the person and having the life that Jesus wants you to be? Maybe I can phrase it another way. What are the three things that cause you the most pain or that you worry about the most? Whether you think about your past or your present, what are those three things? Let me give you just a minute. Is that okay, a moment of awkward silence? Do, 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 do. You don't have to write them in question form, though. What is family trauma? Now, I want you to take that, and I want you to just hold on to it. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. 
But these difficulties, the one you just wrote down, the ones you wrote down, the ones that I have, they are what life is like in Ephesus. They are part of your Ephesus. They are a part of your environment, and if we let them dominate our environment, they will lead to, as the text says, death. Spiritual death, emotional death, and relational death. Maybe some of us right now have relationships that have died because of the things we just wrote down. But Paul's point is that we get to choose. We get to choose what environment we will be in, and that will determine what we will become. There is an option. We skipped to that third section but the envir- uh, on the environment of Ephesus, and it's not the only option. If we head back to section one, chapter one, verses three through 14, Paul's going to describe the other environment. Now, what's interesting about this is that being in Ephesus gets three verses, but being in Christ gets 12. I think that Paul does that intentionally, giving more weight, four times more weight to Jesus than he does to Ephesus to underscore the idea that Jesus is a more powerful formative environment. That no matter what you just wrote down on your paper, if we can just get into the presence of Jesus, if we can just dwell in a new environment, Jesus has the ability to counteract, to cancel, to reconstruct everything that Ephesus has done to us. He has that ability. If I can put it this way, he uses this document structure to remind us that greater is the who we are in than the what we are in. And I say that not to say that greater is he, but greater is the he that we are in. Like we are in the environment of Jesus. And I'm gonna read a lengthy section, but I think it's important. Starting in verse three. And again, pay attention to those environmental words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, where? In the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth, where? In Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now here, in just these verses, 12 verses, we have our in preposition 15 times. And again, there are all kinds of other atmospheric words. And instead of having an environment that is in Ephesus, it tells us we have a new environment of origin in Christ. In Ephesus, we have a history of sin. We have a history of brokenness. We have a history of, a history of hurt and disappointment. But in Christ, we have a history that goes back all the way before the foundation of the world. And it is a different history. It is a history that does not deny our immediate history, but it engulfs it in its vastness and in its plan to love us. It goes past our pain, past our failure, to the beginning. Your mom and your dad's problem are not your entire origin story. They're a part of your story, but they are not your entire story. 
There is another part of your story about the goodness of God long before the garden, about his eternal plan and his preemptive love. Those are a part of your origin story too. And they overwhelm and overshadow our more immediate. We have an environment of innocence. In Ephesus, we have a record of guilt and brokenness. But in Christ, it says we are now blameless in him. He invites us to actually hide inside of his own innocence and holiness. We have a new environment of genetics. In Ephesus, we were the sons of disobedience. But in Christ, he's actually predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. That gives us a new family history that is full of wholeness and life and holiness. We even get a new inheritance, it says. We have a new environment of culture. In Ephesus, it was the river beating us against the rocks of hurt and disappointment and guilt and destructive behavior. But in Christ, we're caught up in another current. It says that we are in his love. It says that we have been lavished with his grace. We have a new way that is carrying us along to a different kind of life. And the result of this environment isn't spiritual, emotional, and relational death, but eternal life with emotional and spiritual and relational life that comes along with it. In fact, it says we've already received the down payment. When it says that we've received the guarantee or the earnest of that inheritance, what it really means is down payment that you actually get some of that environment, you and I forever dwelling in the presence of God where there's no lack, no loss, no brokenness, no nothing. He actually says you get a down payment of that environment now through the presence of Christ made real by the Spirit. You say, I hear you, JP, and I affirm your theology. You're doing good hermeneutics. Thank you. But it's not happening for me. I'm in Christ, I am a Christian, but I still feel like the dominant environment in my life is Ephesus. It's my past. It walks with me every step of the journey. It's my family. It's the chaos that comes into my life through those relationships that I feel bound by Christianity to embrace, but they are destructive to me at every step. It's my hurt. It's the culture of relationships that I built that keep calling me back. It's my fear or my anxiety. That leads us to Paul's third point. And I, I couldn't figure out how to articulate this. It's going to sound like I'm saying something challenging and maybe even harsh. But if you'll stick with me, that's not the way that it's meant. Are we good with that? So give me just a second, okay? Number three. If we're not experiencing it, by that I mean the environment, we're not in it. If we're not experiencing it, we're not in it. I just can't express this strongly enough. In this context, being in Christ isn't about whether you and I are a Christian. It's not about whether you have been forgiven. We tend to think about this passage, and here's how we, it kind of goes. We say, well, I am in Christ, and therefore I am forgiven, and it's an intellectual proposition that we expect might have emotional ramifications. And then we say, well, I'm, I'm loved by God, and we, we claim that, and we stand on that, and we think that because we believe that, it is automatically going to transform our emotional experience. And then we say, and I also believe that God has lavished his grace on me, and therefore I believe that, and having believed that, we expect that automatically having believed it, it will transform our emotional experience, and yet somehow our emotions don't seem to follow our beliefs. 
Anybody understand what I'm saying? I believe that, I affirm that, I am in Christ, I am a Christian, no one is challenging that. But I can tell you that being legally innocent doesn't stop you from feeling guilty. I can tell you that knowing in your head that you are loved does not stop you from feeling unloved and unlovable. I can tell you that knowing that God has brought you into his family does not immediately eradicate the damage inflicted by your family. I can tell you that knowing that you've been given a new nature does not automatically erase the memory and the habit and the discipline of your old nature that has been trained over time. This passage is not about whether you are a Christian, it's about what environment you live in. Ephesus was real. Your world is real. That abuse that you suffered, that was real. That disappointment you have felt, that is real. Those financial pressures, that is real. That anxiety you have about your children or your family, that is real. That is impacting you. And Paul's case is this, is that for being in Christ to impact us, it must also be real. Not real in the existential sense, does it exist, real in the experiential sense. That is, that is it giving us experiences that are as powerful and as profound as Ephesus? Is it impacting our emotions? Is it impacting our daily life? Some people are like, well, Christianity isn't all about emotions. That is baloney. Jesus wants to impact your emotions. Listen to the fruit of the Spirit. We're joy and peace. I'm sorry, those are emotions. You can't claim to have joy and be miserable. You either have it or you don't. You can't say, I got peace while I'm in the middle of an anxiety attack. No, you do not. And that's okay. God loves you, but don't lie to yourself. What he is saying is that if you are in Christ, it is a real experience. It is something that is tangible, and it is powerful enough and real enough that it will give you experiences that eclipse your Ephesus experiences. It must be real. Maybe I can use an example. If a United States citizen, if you are a United States citizen, you are legally entitled to the rights and privileges that citizenship entails. But if you decide to live in North Korea, you will experience none of the benefit of that position. Even though you have the right to be free, you could be in prison. Even though you have the right to feel as though you are free, you have the right to be in fear because you, of where you are located. Your environment makes the difference. It is entirely possible to be in Christ legally and to be in Ephesus practically. And to therefore still live a life that functions like you're living in Ephesus. You and I can be as forgiven as Paul or Timothy and still not be in Christ in the way that this text means it. In some ways, if we do not learn to experience Christ our faith becomes ineffective at some of the things that it promises to us. And that's why we have Paul's prayer. He realizes that being in Christ can feel less real than being in Ephesus. 80% of your brain is dedicated to what you can see. You can't see being in Christ. It's normal that being in Ephesus, being in Grand Rapids, being in your family, being in mine feels more real than being in the kingdom. That's natural. And that's why Paul prays the prayer that he prays, and I want you to look at it. Ephesians chapter one, tucked between these two, 
do you want to be in Christ? Do you want to be in Ephesus? He says, here is the prayer that makes the difference. Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 21. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, listen to this, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. If I can put it this way, that he would make him real. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that he would be real that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that it would be real. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance and the saints, that that would be real. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Watch what he does. Far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and above every name that is named. What he is saying is he's saying, I put Christ up there. I've given him 12 verses to show what his impact is, and he is seated above Ephesus. Everything in your life that comes from Ephesus, whether it's family trauma or family drama, whether it's inside you, outside you, behind you, or in front of you, it must, if we will get into the environment of Christ, bow before the king. But I hope that I have communicated adequately enough that that is not something we claim. That is not something we profess. That is not a dogma that we deliver to ourselves theologically and put on a post-it note. That is an experience that you have. Where that thing that you experience comes into the presence of Jesus with you and the presence of Jesus becomes so real that that thing must bow. And that anxiety, that depression, that trauma, that difficulty, it begins moment after moment Sometimes time, sometimes years in the presence of God. But over and over again it bows. And over some point it just loses its willpower to ever get up again. But it has to be real. So what he's praying is not that we would be removed from Ephesus. Some of our Ephesus we couldn't escape if we wanted to. It lives with us. Some of it is us. And missionally, we're not called to leave Ephesus. We're called to stay there. This is often the reason, though, I think that people want to run away from the world and from the pain and from difficult people is because our counteracting environment isn't real enough to help us in Ephesus. But that's a whole other message. What he's praying is that the reality of being in Christ would be experienced and felt and would become our dominant environment, emotionally, in ways that are real and tangible. I think of... John 3, and if I can give you maybe a little bit of a different way to think about this text. Uh, for those of us that have been Christ followers for a long time, we know this is the place where Nicodemus comes to meet Jesus and we get this famous uh, phrase that we use in the church that we've used for a long time to be born again. And if I can get us to rethink that for just a second, if you go back and you read the text, he really isn't talking to Nicodemus about becoming a Christian. He's really talking to Nicodemus about how he can understand what it's like to live in the kingdom. What it's like to live in this new world of the spirit that Jesus is talking about. And Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and he talks to him, he says, I know that you're a teacher, I've seen the signs that you do, and I want you to tell me about the kingdom of God. And I said, I'm sorry Nicodemus, in order to understand the kingdom, you're going to have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, my mother isn't going to like that very much. In essence, 
It's like, you ever been punched by your mom? Try to be born again. That will take care of it. And he says, no, Nicodemus, you don't understand. You were born once. You were born into Ephesus, if I can blend the two stories together. You were born of your mother. That gave you a family heritage. That gave you a world. That gave you a sociology. That gave you a culture. That gave you a history. That gave you your personhood and desires. And that has been impacting you to this day. But for you to understand the kingdom, you're actually, if I can put it this way, and I think this is consistent with the text, I'm gonna ask you to come up into another womb, another formative environment of the spirit, and be born into another environment. And it is going to shape you in a way that's completely different from the one that you've been shaped by. I want you to be born again. I want you to embrace a different environment, not one where you have to prove yourself and assert yourself and, de and demonstrate your value, but one where you are loved and you are lavished with grace, one where you have a plan from before time began that leads to an end after time is all over. I want you to embrace a new environment in order for you to understand and become the person that I want you to be, Nicodemus. You're gonna have to be born. You're gonna have to come into a different womb and you're gonna have to have a different environment shape you. That's what it means to be born again. Being in Christ is a location. And it is a place where the healing he gives is greater than the pain they inflicted. It's a place where the innocence he gives is greater than any guilt that we feel. It's a place where the purpose that he plans for us is more meaningful than the mistake that we feel that we are. It's a place where the, the pleasure and care that he gives is more profound and meaningful than any cheap fling, any momentary experience with pornography or temporary high. It's a place where the affirmation he gives is greater than the risk we feel about knowing and being known by others. But in order for it to do any of those things, and I know I repeat myself. It has to be real. We must choose to make the environment of Christ what we are in. 2022 is right around the corner. And there really are two different 2022s waiting for us. Which one we choose will depend on what we are in. I want you to look at that little list that you made. Here's how you can know which 2022 you will experience. You can answer one simple question. Think about how those things on that list have impacted you the ways that they have caused you fear, they've, they've damaged you, they've caused you sometimes to even behave in ways that perpetuate the cycle of the thing that was done to you. Here's how you can know. Will your daily experience with Christ be more powerful emotionally, authentically, than the impact those have made on your life. That will be the single determining factor as to whether 2022 is the year of Ephesus 
year. It's the year of Jesus. That addiction that you've suffered with, that can go away. But the experiences that have accompanied and led up to that addiction have to be drowned out by a more persuasive experience in the presence of Jesus. The chances are Jesus isn't just gonna go doody, 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 and you're all better. Because he doesn't wanna be our genie, he wants to be our father. He wants us to lean into his presence, to know him and to be known by him. That is what will make the difference. My mother who passed away last year was diagnosed with mucosal melanoma now 11 years ago and when they diagnosed her they said you have six months the short side 24 months to live that time the five-year survival rate was zero that's not an encouraging number zero and um, we noticed after she was diagnosed that she would stay up all night all night by herself she would sit in a little four season room they had that overlooked Little Black Lake and Northern Shores. I was worried about her. I was, I'm like, is she depressed? Which I could absolutely understand. Is she, is she suffering? Is it anxiety? Is it physical pain? I'm not going to lie. I even wondered, is, is she suicidal? Are we going to show up one morning and she's like, you know what? I, I'd just rather not face this. I remember I pulled her aside and I said, Mom, I said, what are you doing up all night? Here's what she said. She said, JP, I'm just getting into the nest. See, on one of those first nights, she had an experience where Jesus made himself so real to her. He gave her Psalm 91.4, I will cover you with my feathers, and under my wings you will find refuge. And night after night, she took her tears and her fear, her anxiety, her doubt, her dread, and she crawled into the nest until the voice of the Father was greater than the voice of the fear. And what was crazy is, is as Ephesus got louder, Jesus just seemed to amplify his voice to meet the occasion. And what was even crazier is that as she spent time in the nest, other things that were of Ephesus that had nothing to do with her cancer began to just disappear from her life. Things that happened to her when she was 15 all of a sudden disappeared in the nest at 65 and 70. My mother's last 10 years were the richest 10 years of her life because she was so often in Christ, in the nest, that decades of Ephesus just slipped away. That's my, my prayer for our 2022. 